the expectations were really, really high. And usually when that's the case, it doesn't happen. They don't reach expectations. He was better than expectations. Bob Geldof, and I would never have known this, is unbelievably eloquent. Like he's a really good public speaker. Doesn't do all of the by the book things, like he pranced up and down the stage, doesn't really stop, he's just got this unbelievable energy, but hugely informed, could talk macro, micro, Australia, Europe, Trump, Brexit, rock and roll, poverty in Africa. He could cover any topic and he did it eloquently. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a professional, articulate, entertaining, and crowd favorite professional MC. Our guest thrived in drama, basketball and theatre at Sydney Boys High School and studied a Bachelor of Arts and Law at the University of New South Wales. He is former Director of Impact Intertrainers, Director of Legal Policy at New South Wales Department of Multicultural and Ethnic Affairs and was a solicitor at Clayton Utes. Known for personalising experiences, injecting energy, being right on the mark and keeping it fresh as the founder of Spike Presentations. He has hosted successful events at companies such as Westpac, Ernst & Young, Telstra, IBM, Coca-Cola and Commonwealth Bank. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage the man who invented life's a pitch and how to awe them, not bore them. Andrew Klein. Andrew. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And thank you for calling me articulate and entertaining. That puts a lot of pressure on right up the back for me to be both articulate and entertaining. I'll do my best. Well, you're a performer, so I'll do my best. the stage is set. Bringing energy and a dash of zest to the room and, and delivering engaging experiences are your natural talents. When did you know you were destined for the stage? That's an interesting question. I don't think I ever really thought of myself as destined for the stage. I'm not an extrovert, but I'm also not an introvert. I was always involved when I was at school in acting, in public speaking, got involved in the school plays and school musicals. It was really only after school at university, I was studying arts law, and as part of arts, I was majoring in theatre studies, surrounded essentially by very theatrical performing types and I really got into it. In fact, it was my ticket through university, hated the study of law, but loved the drama. And so I never intended on being an actor, and that came true, I'm not an actor, but I always liked the idea of being on stage. And so even though I don't think of myself as a quote unquote performer, uh, I'm probably selling myself short. When you're on stage, you are a performer, whether you like it or not. So. In answer to your question, probably at university, uh, also got involved in theatre sports. So the whole 
impro scene is something that I really enjoyed and felt that I could do comfortably. And that's definitely had a, a big impact on, on what I do now in the corporate conference circuit. Yeah, so for, for those listening, we're here at the Intercontinental Hotel in Double Bay and, and there's obviously a few conferences going on in the background, so you might hear a few things as, uh, as we're talking. What was life like growing up in Sydney and was there anyone you aspired to be? Uh, well, I probably aspired to be Michael Jordan, the basketballer, but I didn't really fit any of the criteria other than I played basketball, but I didn't <laughs> play basketball particularly well. And uh, it was sort of a little bit of an idol. But the other people that actually I idolised were comedians. I was always into, and still am into, uh, following comedy. So when I was younger, my dad used to have uh, comedians records, used to listen to a lot of records of comedians and then comedy TV shows and sitcoms. Uh, and to this day, now on Netflix, I'm constantly watching uh, comedians. So I never intended on, I never wanted to be a stand-up comic and still I am not a stand-up comic. I actually, I don't think I could do it, even though I use a lot of comedy and, and you know, improvisation and have a lot of fun in my work. But I think I always looked up to comedians and found that as something that, uh, that I really enjoyed and, and to this day still do. It's, it's a really interesting watching comedians, the craft, you know, they will, um, you have the best comedians in the world and they go find the smallest comedy venues to test their, their lines and, and they might just change one word and, and they may spend three, four months just taking a sentence that's six uh, words long down to five. I, I was actually listening to a podcast just the other day uh, of, about comedians. Uh, interviews with comedians and Jerry Seinfeld who if anybody is a quote-unquote hero of mine I think he's an absolute genius and Lovett took my Very clever. wife and my son went to see him uh, just two years ago here in Sydney when he came out my um, the, that particular interview with him he spent about 10 minutes in the interview explaining why in one of his routines he changed the word infrastructure which he was using to system and he'd given immense amount of thought. He talks about his yellow pads that he literally writes down in detail every word and reworks and puts together every single word for a routine to try and get it right. And he was road testing a routine about something or other and he used the word infrastructure and he said, it got a laugh but I felt it could have got more of a laugh. Yeah. And so the next time I did it, I changed the word infrastructure to, to systems and it got a bigger laugh. Yeah, well. Essentially, it's a science to yeah. him. And I, I, I can't say that I'm anywhere in the league of any of those people, but one thing that I love to do that is similar to them is that I do spend a lot of time writing stuff that I'm going to say. Now, I don't read it word for word, and I'm always in the moment, and I always like to read the room and improvise and feel my way, but I prepare intricately for every job every introduction, every piece of housekeeping, every Q&A session, a lot of wordplay and putting it together and trying to work out the best, perhaps most succinct, you can't hear that when I'm speaking now because <laughs> succinctness isn't something that I do well in interviews, but certainly when I'm presenting, I do really labour to try and find the best way to tell a story or to describe something. Perfect, all right. Well, we're gonna come back to presenting and describing and, and speaking later on. 
let's go back to, you know, you come out of university with your arts and law degree. You talked about hating being a lawyer there. Why did you become a lawyer? Yeah, it's uh, something that I ask myself on a regular basis, certainly not through parental pressure. My dad was an architect, my mum was a teacher. None of them pressured me into becoming a lawyer. I didn't really know that many lawyers. My misguided belief, and the reason that I did law was that I'm good at talking, I was good at talking, and it seemed to me like the right thing to do if you were interested in language. And as I said before, I liked performing. So my plan back when I was at high school, and I had no idea really who I was and what my passions were, but my plan was study law, get a job in a law firm, do that for five years, maybe 10 years, and then go to the bar, become a barrister, because a barrister, in my mind, was a combination of words, I was good at English, I liked writing, I liked speaking, public speaking, performing, sort of married all of those things together. That proved to me to be misguided and wrong within, I'm not kidding you, a couple of months of starting law. I was sitting there looking around at the other people who all seemed to be quite passionately involved and paying attention, and I was bored and disheartened, and I'm very optimistic. So I kept on thinking, it's gonna get better, it's gonna get better, maybe next year, maybe next subject, maybe next semester, never did. And with no idea whatsoever what I wanted to do, I took a year off, I worked, I traveled, I did the backpacking thing, I thought maybe I would get some clarity. I didn't. I came back, I finished my law degree, still no clarity, got a job at a law firm, you mentioned Clayton Utes before, got a job there doing summer clerkship, hated it, thought it was the wrong place for me, <laughs> but optimistically thought it would get better. It never did, I gave it a year, I gave it another year. Literally hated the whole experience. Went, as you said before, went and worked for the Ethnic Affairs Commission, public sector, so the total opposite type of job. Marginally more interesting, but after a couple of years of that, I realized maybe I'm just not meant to be a lawyer. Didn't know what I wanted to do, but knew what I didn't. And literally ran away, as in left the law. Here's a quick story for you. The day after I left the law, so I left law on Friday, on a Friday, the following Monday, I worked in the city in Sydney. The following Monday, I was standing at Martin Place Station. I had a job. A friend of mine had just started up a business delivering birthday cakes, cakes to the wow. corporate market, to all the office yeah. buildings in the city. And she needed somebody who was willing to dress up as the Swedish chef from the Muppet Show. <laughs> Brilliant. And hand out leaflets. And I was handing out leaflets for... I'm gonna say five bucks 50 an hour at Martin Place Station to people coming out of the subway station, literally two days after I quit my, you know, quote unquote, high powered legal career. And I remember handing the leaflet to a young guy who I worked with, who took the leaflet, looked at the leaflet, looked at my chef's hat, looked me in the eye and went, Good career move, Kleine. <laughs> and I was actually happier doing that than I was as a lawyer. So I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wasn't gonna be a lawyer and I never have since. So standing in Marketplace as a Muppet, no, no pun intended there. Yep. <laughs> what was the spark that lit the flame to go, you know what, I'm gonna start my own business and I'm going to get into the, the world of presentations and you know, that performance delivery from a human point of view. Yeah, so a friend of mine who I went to school with and who I'd done some performances with, a guy called Darren Eisenberg, who's also a, uh, an MC in the corporate market, 
uh, Darren and I started brainstorming ideas. He was a teacher, I'd been a lawyer, and we decided to set up a business, which we did, doing study skills seminars for year 11 and year 12 students. Using his, his uh, teaching background and my performing background, his performing background, and I had done some youth leadership stuff, we put it all together and we would go into a school, take a group of year 11 and year 12 students, literally the whole year, out of classes for the day, in a hall or in a gym, and we would do workshops, seminars, which we would run, essentially on how to study more effectively. And that was the first intro, I guess, into presenting and performing, and tough crowd, right? Year yeah. 11 and year 12 students, if they don't like you, you will get instant feedback. So you've got to be on your game, you've got to be engaging them, you've got to be keeping them involved, you've got to be actively presenting. And we did that very successfully for quite a few years, while at the same time we were running pub trivia quizzes, <laughs> which we just did for fun and earning like next to nothing. Uh, but through the pub trivia quizzes, that led to a group of accountants from PricewaterhouseCoopers who would come each week to our pub, to our, to our quiz at the pub, saying, hey, we really like the way you do things and the way you engage the audience and the humour that you use and the research that you do. Could you do something at our conference? Manly Pacific uh, Park Royal, they were doing a conference. We said yes, we did that. That worked. We then started doing corporate trivia quizzes. That then broadened to corporate team building activities. And that, while we were doing team building, that was our intro into the conference market. We then got asked by some clients, hey, can you stick around and MC for us the next day, the next morning of the conference, or can you do our gala dinner? We started doing that. Originally, Darren and I together, and then Darren and I separately still had a business together. And then we very amicably were still friends to this day, split. But that was sort of our intro into the conference market. That then led to emceeing conferences and the emceeing of conferences. Then as businesses often end up taking this path, somebody's just walked into our room <laughs> and then just walked out, we're at a hotel. Uh, a, a client said to us, could you, you guys are good presenters, could you show us how to present? Could you teach us presentation skills? And we could because we'd been doing it a long time. Yeah. And to this day, on the one hand, I can say quite comfortably, I'm not a qualified presentation skills coach insofar as that's not what I studied at university, although theatre studies does qualify you in a way. But it's through experience. It's through sitting in conference rooms for hours and days on end that you learn how to engage an audience, how to present effectively, and most importantly, how not to present. You see the, the bad present, I've learned more from watching bad presenters mm. than I have from watching good presenters. And so now, long answer to your question, I warned you, <laughs> now about half of my work is emceeing conferences and about half of my work is teaching, training, and speaking in the area of presenting and pitching. Yeah, excellent. And so, you know, talking about those conferences, you know, for me, I've, I've seen you um, MC a couple of times now. I love how you inject energy and humor to the, and bring humor to the stage. How important is to set the mood at the beginning of the event? Vital. It is, it is vital. It is very, very difficult if a conference gets off on a slow foot on an 
lacking in energy, it can still be turned around, but it is difficult. So the importance of stamping at the very, very beginning of the conference, the vibe of this is the type of conference you ladies and gentlemen, I mean, you don't say this, but this is the subtext. This is the vibe that we're aiming for here. If you can get that across effectively, that can definitely keep going throughout the conference. And that involves, apart from a huge amount of preparation, a lot of it is, is the intangible, I guess, emotional intelligence of reading the room. Now, I do a lot, as I say, I do a lot of research and most of the conferences that I do now are repeat conferences. So you have a pretty good idea of who's in the room, what the mood is. I ask copious questions of my clients beforehand. Who's in the room? What's going on in the company? What's going on in the industry? Have there been any management changes? Has the economy been good for your business? How did the budget last night affect the, you? All, all of those things. I mean, a classic example, Craig, is that two weeks ago, the day after the Christchurch incident, mm. I was emceeing a conference in Wellington. Yeah, well. So reading the room is vital. Now, interestingly, the room wasn't what I thought the room was going to be like. Mm. There was an element absolutely and understandably in the country and in the room of there was a somber tone, but people still wanted to have a conference and they still wanted to learn and there was still a need for energy. But the humour element that I would normally bring in, that had to be, you know... Toned down. It had to be toned down. Now, you didn't have to be a genius of emotional intelligence to realise that you would have to do that. That's one end of the spectrum. But sometimes it could be that you go to a conference and the industry's had a hard couple of weeks and people are worried about their careers or their jobs or the future of the company. So how do you play that as opposed to a sales conference when everything is booming and everyone's in a wonderful state of mind or a franchise group that's just had a, a record financial year, you've got to read the room. And the room tone can change throughout the day and throughout the conference. So there's a lot of those subtleties that you've just got to be attuned to that I, I'm really hyper aware of all the time. So, and sh you know, sitting in that mood, that's your job. You, you're the MC. So what does your pre-event routine look like? You know, what do you do so that you come with the energy? Because um, you may have just traveled halfway around the world. You, you may be sick. You, you, who knows what's happening, a bit of stress in your life. Or you might just feel great. How, how do you make sure that's consistent and you can bring yourself up? Yeah, I use a little bit of a psychological trick as far as bringing the energy is concerned. Um, I mean, more generally speaking, I get a good night's sleep, always. Um, I do rest, I have got my fitness routine, I do get up an hour before I need to be anywhere. When I'm not in Sydney, I will go for a walk around wherever I am. So if I go to the Gold Coast, I'll do an hour's walk outside just to freshen myself. And also, to be honest, if I'm away from home, I like to I like traveling. I like seeing the places, Gold Coast perhaps not a good example, it's not that <laughs> the most exciting place for me, I shouldn't say that some of the people listening to this may live in the Gold Coast, love the Gold Coast. But you know, if you're if you're somewhere, I do like to, to get out. I eat well, I get to bed early. I've done the lion's share of my research before the conference starts. So the hard part for me is actually 
before the conference. Once I get to the conference, I'm ready. I've got it all under control except for the things that are inevitably going to go wrong and are going to change and the changes are going to happen. Got to adapt to that. So I tend to be fairly energetic, but in answer to your question, I do this little psychological thing that every single time I take the two or three steps up from the conference floor onto the stage, I say to myself, you've got to be energetic, even if you're not feeling it. Got to look energetic, got to sound energetic, it's got to look, that energy's got to be in my eyes, it's got to be in the sound of my voice, it's got to be in the movement of my body. And walking up those stairs is a reminder of a number of things. First of all, you walk up and down those stairs 10, 15 times a day. So you're not just up at the beginning, you're up at the beginning and then before the CEO and after the CEO, before the sales manager and after the sales manager, before the keynote speaker and after the keynote speaker and before the panel and after the panel. So each time I go up, I bring the energy. Got to be careful that you're not too over energetic because you can misread that and be too rah-rah and salesy in a group that isn't rah-rah and salesy and that you won't engage with them if you bring the energy too much. So you've got to read that read that room uh, and importantly in my head even though it might be the 15th conference that i'm doing that year it's probably the first and possibly the only conference that everybody else in the room is going to yeah. so it's like you hear comedians and performers people who are in broadway musicals they might be doing that broadway musical for the 335th time but for that audience it's their one and only time so you've got to be as energetic every single time. So I constantly remind myself of that and try and meet the energy of the room, but then lift a little bit, always remembering, as weird as this sounds, that it's not about me. It's definitely not about you, and that's a mistake a lot of speakers make, is they forget that they're there to serve the audience, and that's it's right. about the audience. So sort of elaborating on that a little bit, it's key to events being memorable is the speakers that are on there. It's not just you as the MC, it's the actual speakers are there and how they interact with the audience. So maybe let's look at a couple of things that you feel are areas that speakers who, if they do these things, they come across really well and make it memorable. And there may be a couple of things that you see that are mistakes that are made quite often at conferences and we all know the ones where we're watching everyone on their, their phones or people are starting to fall asleep or walk out. I think probably the number one thing, and there's no magic in what I'm about to say here, but the number one thing for speakers is authenticity. So there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time preparing their presentation and rehearsing their presentation and putting their presentation together. Somebody's just walked in here again wanting to clean up the room. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time putting it together, but the one thing that they don't do, which is the easiest thing to do, is be themselves. They try and be something else. They try and be a rock star, as in a rock star presenter, or they, they don't essentially tap into who they really are and just talk to the audience like I'm talking to you. It's a conversation. It's a conversation. The analogy that I always use when I'm training presenters is just imagine that there is a cup of coffee between you and the audience. And the audience is not an audience, the audience is just a lot of one person individuals. And you're just having a cup of coffee with one person in the audience, from the audience's perspective. And the more you think that, then the less you put on that performance, quote unquote performance look and sound. You should essentially 
sound the same way when you're talking to a large group of people as when I'm talking to you as when I'm talking to my, my family. So authenticity is the key. Uh, a couple of other things. This is something that I, I know that you will know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will know what I'm talking about, but it's gone too far. The presenters that are not going to engage with the audience are the presenters that are relying on dot points on their PowerPoint slides. And I know that there's so much spoken about this and so much written about this, but we are losing the war against PowerPoint. Mm. PowerPoint has got out of control and it was out of control five years ago. Now it's even more out of control and that's the disconnect, in my view, between the presenters that get up on stage, they're authentic, they have a conversation, they tell a story, maybe they've got a couple of visuals, and the presenters who get up on stage turn their back 45 degrees to the audience, face the PowerPoint slides, and just essentially do a read through. And the audience is sitting there going, mate, just send us the PDF, we can yeah. read. There's no connection. There is, there is no connection whatsoever. So I see that happening all the time, and it's, it, it drives me nuts. And we're losing that war. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing everything that I can, as are many other people, to try and convince people not to do that. One other thing in, in relation to connecting with your audience, and I don't think conferences do this particularly well, with the exception of professional full-time keynote speakers, I believe that most presentations are too long. They should be much shorter. So your average presentation at a conference is somewhere between 40 and 60 minutes. And that's too long yeah. for the sales manager, for the CEO, for the IT manager, for the compliance and risk presentation. Those presentations should be, in my view, 15 to 20 minutes, key message, key message, key message. Here's where you ladies and gentlemen can find out the detail if you want, click here. Here's the resource, go to this website. But while I've got you captive in the room, I'm gonna give you the distilled key messages and that's it. And most conferences get that wrong. Mm -hmm. So my advice always to speakers, unless they're a professional keynote speaker who have got a beautifully honed 45 minute presentation, go less. Less is more, keep it short, key messages, and then get the hell out of there. I've never, in 20 something years of presenting, I've never heard an audience say, I really wish that presentation was longer. Yeah. Like they might say it about a rock star keynote presenter, but even then, it's usually, you know, that 45 minutes was captivating, but it was enough. But I don't want to hear a CEO with respect to any CEO listening to this, and I know that's what it's for. No matter how good a CEO you are, there is almost no person sitting in your audience at a conference who is excited about hearing you, the CEO, talk for more than 15 to 20 minutes. And I see a lot of CEOs, brilliant CEOs, great leaders, mm. great managers, great at their jobs, not great presenters. Yeah. And they go too long. Yeah, for sure. Keep it short. Tough you, one. you got me on my high horse Oh, then. it's good, I like it. <laughs> so can you share with us a time when things didn't go to plan? And can you explain how you got the train back on the tracks, so to speak? Yeah, people ask me that question all, all the time. I, I'm, I'm lucky enough, or maybe I've been prepared enough, I don't think I've had any real disasters. And I think part of that, part of that is, is luck. Part of that is to do with the research that you do. So 
the more prepared you are, and the more you know who's gonna be in that room, you've got a pretty good idea of what is or isn't going to work. But there are, there are levels of it. So there are times that despite the research, you get there and for whatever reason, and sometimes it's totally, un, there's no way that you could have known about it. And sometimes you don't ever really know. It's just the, the feeling that you have. The room is not willing to laugh or the room is not willing to get involved. I will always, in the moment, strip away the humour if I feel this isn't working. I'm not a comedian, so people aren't coming along to the conference expecting the MC to be funny. They're coming along to expect that MC to get up and get off, mm -hmm. do their job, do their housekeeping, move it along, introduce the speakers. If I can make them laugh and get them engaged and do something interactive, awesome, but they don't expect it of me. So if I feel that the humour isn't working, I'll strip it away. If I feel that they're not patient, I will talk less. I will literally get up and do the bare minimum. I'll still do, do it with energy and I'll still do what I need to do, but I won't do anything extra if that's what they don't want. And there have been many times where I have felt this group are tired. Well, then I might need to change tack, get them to stand up, do something interactive, or this group are not responding, in which case just got to keep doing it because that's what you're paid to do, but keep it shorter, cut out the humour and you know maybe take out some of the tailored stuff that I had put together and just do the, the bare minimum. But no no disasters other than, and this had oh, nothing to go, do we with- found it. Oh, no, I found one. <laughs> other than, it had nothing to do with me per se, but it was a conference that I was emceeing. And as soon as I tell you the beginning of it, you'll know how it ends. It was a car launch. And car launches, they don't do it that much anymore, but certainly, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, there are a lot of car launches when companies would spend a huge amount of their budget on the reveal of the car. And at this particular reveal involved driving the car up from behind the stage, a curtain would drop, and they had built this sort of ramp, and the car was going to come fairly quickly over the ramp, and then down the ramp, and then stop. And the car stalled. <laughs> right, that's all that happened. Now that's a disaster as far sure. as the car is concerned. Brand. The event people, oh. you know, pulling their hair out. The audience don't care. The audience yeah. are forgiving. It gives them something to laugh at. Those sorts of things. They'll remember their car. They'll remember the car. They'll remember the car launch. And they won't be sitting there going, well, clearly it's a crappy car. They'll just go, look, that didn't work. So there were, I can't remember what I said, but you know, you had to recover from that. You had to make light of that situation without in any way insulting the client. <laughs> so technical things, I was doing a job on Hamilton Island once when there was a storm and all the lights went out. Literally, it was pitch, pitch black. Again, from an event manager's perspective, that's a disaster. From the audience's perspective, they giggled. I shouted, because I didn't have any microphone, because there was no microphone. I shouted, we are having technical difficulties, we'll be back online soon, just chat with the person next to you. And everyone chatted for e with each other for 10 minutes and it made no difference. Yeah. Everyone behind the scenes was sweating and worried and thinking it's a disaster. It's not a disaster. I think that's one thing that you learn as an MC. You can recover, you can handle any of those situations, just get people to talk to each other. That's why they're there. They want to network. So you've been on, you know, you've introduced a lot of people around the world and, and I know you've introduced some quite high, I would say celebrities or, or quite high leaders in the world. Who would you rate as your top speaker that you have introduced and why? 
Okay. Well, the most this is this is a not directly answering your question. This is me switching into legal mode. The one that I was most excited about was the Wiggles. <laughs> I did get to say, ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome to the stage, the Wiggles. And for me, that was pretty awesome. But they weren't inspiring speakers. But it was the Wiggles. Uh, interesting, you should ask that question because I have a feeling that I may have just peaked with that last week. Mm. I see a lot of interesting, exciting speakers. Some of the best speakers that I see are actually no names. Yep. They're not famous. They're not rock stars. They're not famous. They're not politicians. They're not uh, uh, sporting stars. Sometimes you just see a professor from the University of Wollongong who happens to be an expert in plastics who is just fascinating and interesting and dynamic and engaging. You see those sorts of no-name but really good speakers doing all the things mm -hmm. that I was just talking about before. But as far as big names are concerned, look, I've introduced a lot of famous people, politicians, Hollywood personalities. Last week, Bob Geldof. That was, from my perspective, uh, exciting on a number of a number of levels. First of all, I'm a child of the '80s, so grew up with I don't like Mondays, but that's not really who he is anymore. But I, but Live Aid, Live Aid's huge, was a pivotal part of my life. I remember watching Live Aid in 1985. I think it was. I remember it. I remember all parts of it. I was totally obsessed. I'm very much into music, so he was a significant person. But the reason that he was so good was that I've, I've spoken to a few people at the conference about this. The expectations were really, really high. And usually when that's the case, it doesn't happen. Yep. They don't reach expectations. He was better than expectations. Bob Geldof, oh. and I would never have known this, is unbelievably eloquent. Like he's a really good public speaker. Doesn't do all of the by the book things like he pranced up and down the stage, doesn't really stop. He's just got this unbelievable energy but hugely informed, could talk macro, micro, Australia, Europe, Trump, Brexit, rock and roll, poverty in Africa. He could cover any topic and he did it eloquently with amazing humour, told some great stories and was very, very humble and normal, very, very normal. He was a great speaker. I'm gonna say at the moment, him, but just below him, there's probably three or four people on the Aussie speaking circuit right now, again, not famous, but who are at the very, very top of their game and are brilliant, brilliant speakers. Happy to name some of them, but uh, there's there's a lot of them out there. No, it's good, and I think Bob Galdoff is, you know, a lot of us um, probably on the podcast would recognize him and as you said live aid and we've had the recent the freddie mercury mm. story come out and and it's it's quite i suppose quite filling at the yeah. moment to, to bring that story to light so the art of influence persuasion and presence are so vital to delivering that great presentation so what is your spike presentations elevator pitch my elevator pitch for spike presentations is essentially this i say to people You've been in the audience time and time again, listening to people who were knowledgeable on a topic, but they were unable to engage with you. Are you one of those people? So I flip it around. We all know what it's like to be in the audience and listen to those speakers. 
Nobody thinks that it's them, but statistically it is. You've seen some really crappy speakers. Yeah. Do those crappy speakers know that they are crappy speakers? So I'm not that different to many other people who teach presentation skills and pitching skills, except that I don't subscribe to a lot of the things that blogs and other presentation skills trainers and presentation skills books and a lot of the training that I did. I don't subscribe to a lot of those things. I have no triangle, no matrix, no concentric circles, no seven step formula of presenting. I actually, to touch on the point that I made before, I really talk about how can you be the best presenter that you can be by simply being yourself. So it's not about perfect eye contact, perfect voice modulation, perfect structure, perfect storytelling. Those things are all important, but essentially it's how can you tap into who you are, even if the way in which you present is a little bit raw, but how can you tap into that and engage with people so that they don't get as bored as you get when you're in the audience? That's the key, it's keeping them engaged. So for you, during the, the month of March, you've traveled a lot and obviously you, you introduced Bob Geldof, um, you've been up to Vietnam, you've been in Hong Kong. With this constant travel and the randomness of the working hours, how do you ensure that you remain fit and healthy? Yeah, great question. The first thing I would say is that I'm not always conferencing. So March is an interesting example. So I had three international conferences in March. That's very unusual. It's not unusual for me to have three conferences in one month. I will often have three or more conferences in a month. But most of the time I'm in Sydney, Melbourne, Gold Coast, Brisbane, Adelaide, a little bit. Of, like, I don't do a lot of international conferences. I probably am overseas at the moment maybe five or six times a year. So it's not a lot. It just so happened that three landed in the one month. And also there are many months of the year where I have no conferences. It's quite seasonal. I did my last conference in 2018 on the last day of November. I had no conferences in December, no conferences in January, and only started conferencing right at the end of February. That's essentially a three month period mm. of no conferencing. School holidays, which are about to happen, Easter, so April, very quiet. May, really busy. June, July, relatively busy. August, September, October, November, full-on crazy conference after conference. So it is quite seasonal. I couldn't lead the lifestyle of last month every week or every month. Couldn't and wouldn't and would never, would never allow that to happen. I'm super, super focused and disciplined with how much work I take. And part of that is in answer to your question, so that I don't burn out, so that I am at home, because I'm away a lot, but I'm also at home a lot at other times. So I really, really work my calendar hard to make sure that there are breaks between conferences, breaks after busy periods. So there are some speakers I know on the circuit who literally, they're in Perth and they're in Vietnam and they're in America. Then they go to Europe, then they do seven dates around Australia, then they're back for a day, then the next day they're in New Zealand, then the next day they're in Hong Kong, then they're in Vietnam, then they're off to China, then they're back to Sydney. And I don't lead that. It might look like it based on the last month and August, September, October, November, I lead that life a fair bit. So I'm fairly balanced and spaced out a lot of the year into how, how I work. I need the time in my office, I work from home, to prepare. 
So I have to allow myself the time once a conference finishes to make sure that I'm totally prepared for the next conference. So it looks like the work that I'm doing for the conference is jumping on the plane and spending two days in Vietnam, but that discounts the several days that I've spent at home, upstairs, in the study, just me and Pebbles, my schnoodle, my dog, sitting by my side with a cup of coffee, just banging out stuff onto the computer, researching, emailing, doing all of that. So I balance all of that. I try and have breaks in between. I do the wake up an hour earlier and get outside. I've got my fitness routine. I go to the gym a couple of times a week, walk the dog a couple of times a week. I've got my fitness routine that I do before I go to bed with some planking and other exercises a fair bit of basketball in the driveway with my kids. I sometimes coach my kids in basketball as well. Uh, I lead a remarkably normal, boring, dull, but wonderful family life when I'm at home, which is a lot. I am also away a lot. So I balance that. When I go to a conference, I am the most slept, best slept and most sober person at the conference. Every conference I go to, people drink, they stay up late, they have several drinks and they wake up early and then they stay up late and they eat a lot and they party. I don't. It's a job for me. So I go to the evening function, but as soon as it's appropriate for me to leave, I go back, I'm asleep, I get my sleep early, wake up, eat well, as in eat healthily, work hard, go back to my room, go to sleep. So I balance it. I lead a fairly normal, disciplined life. Otherwise, I think as a speaker, particularly a middle-aged speaker, um, you can burn out. Yeah. And, and I've seen it happen. It's quite a good segue, actually, because we're just building out Breaking the CEO Code, which talks a lot around um, the CEO periodization, which um, our listeners are going to start to hear and, and learn a lot more of over the next few months as we build it out and start to bring that to life to the audiences. And so one of the, the key aspects we talk about in there is as a, a performer. So say we look at an athlete, we look at an artist, we look at a dancer, singer, musician, speaker, they spend 90, most of them, the really good ones, 95% of their time or even more training, preparing, practicing, and less than 5% of their time performing. Flip that around to CEOs, complete opposite. 95% of their time, even more sometimes, they are in the game, they're competing, and they spend very little time on that preparation. How can you deliver that performance? And if you think about how often you walk into a meeting, how often does the energy rise and do you feel empowered by the person that is speaking, whether it be the CEO or someone else? Very rare. And it's because they don't treat it as a performance or as a opportunity to deliver high performance. So I really like what you do there as you spread it out and you know your busy periods and then you have some downtime as well so you can recover, so you yeah, can prepare. Having, having said that, to be fair to a lot of the people that I see, that, that the CEOs and the senior leaders, I'm very aware of the fact that as CEOs and as leaders, they have a staff. They have teams of people who want their time. They are responsible to a lot of people. And I'm responsible to, to literally no one. I have a company, Spike Presentations, 
but it's not a company, it's just the name of my organisation. It's really Andrew Klein, and will always be Andrew Klein. I have no team. This is all by design, as in I'm happy yeah, with this. Sure. I don't want to have, I don't really, in essence, have a company. I have people that I outsource to. So I have an IT guy. He doesn't work for Spike Presentations, but he spends a lot of time helping me with IT because I work from home and I have three teenagers and they all have their multi-devices and we have our Wi-Fi that never works and so he lives lives essentially at our house. My daughter, who's now tw- uh, 13, when she was about six and at kindy, she had to draw a picture of her family and she drew herself, her two older brothers, her mother, her father, and another guy. And the teacher <laughs> asked, who's the other guy? And she said, well, that's Natan. And the teacher didn't know who Natan was and asked me, or uh, I think it was me, it could have been Danny, my wife, who's Natan? As if, you know, do we have some unorthodox family? He's the IT guy. He was spending so much time at our house. It was around the time I was setting up my home office that Lucy thought he was a member of the family. Anyway, it's brilliant. I, I digress. So I have a bookkeeper. I have an accountant. We have a financial advisor. I have someone who helps me a little bit with marketing, with putting my, my collateral and website and stuff together. But I'm not really responsible to them in the same way that a CEO is. So I take my hat off to them that the juggling that they have to do is quite different. My juggle is essentially about my time and my family time and my work, so trying to get that right. But it's much easier when you don't have a team. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, you can't flip it right around. Yeah, no and I'm way. amazed sometimes at some CEOs that I come across, and you see them at a conference, who have got that balance, if not right, pretty close, mm. and some who, by their own admission, are all over the place, disconnected from their families, disconnected from their friends, it's all encompassing. But it doesn't have to be. I often meet CEOs and yeah. see them present who are very involved in their family life and very involved in the corporate life and look after their staff, look after their teams, spend time with their children. It can be done. Yeah. I take my hat off to them because I find it hard enough just looking after yes, myself so. and my family. <laughs> Definitely. So we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? That's a great question, Craig, but I can answer that question. The last time I did something for the first time was at the beginning of this year. That's actually interesting given the subject of, uh, of what you do. I had never been a gym person until January 2019. I'd always been interested in sport, played a lot of basketball when I was younger, did various other things, loved going skiing. We go skiing as a family whenever we can. We just went skiing now in the, in the uh, school holidays. But I'd never been to the gym. And my son, who's 20, found a gym relatively close to us that's a very, not a gym where you go to be seen. It's actually a gym where you go and you won't be seen. And he found this gym and was absolutely loving it and became very disciplined at going. And my other son started to go with him and then my daughter started to go. My my wife does other fitness routines herself, but I'd never been to the gym. And she said, I reckon you should come. And I went and I liked it and I go. 
and I enjoy it. I don't, I'm not, so far, it's only four months down the track, but so far I'm not actually finding the discipline of going all that difficult. Even to the point where I was just away now in March, I went to the hotel gyms. I'd never done that before either. Hotel gyms are awesome yeah. and really have some amazing stuff there. And you get to hang out with the delegates who are, who are there early in the morning or later at night. Yes. So yes, in answer to that, that's my answer. Going to the gym, never done it before, got to this stage of my life and uh, now I'm doing something new. Love it. What is the one question that you would love to solve? I would like to solve the question of how do we change, this has got very little to do with conferencing, although it, it, it is connected. How do we change the way in which we educate kids at school? As the father of three kids, three teenagers, one who's finished school, one doing the HSC and one in year eight, at a great school with fantastic teachers, but I think the education system is antiquated and broken and is not keeping up to track with changes in the way young people think and the way people learn and with technology, even though they started to use technology around the edges, I'd like to answer the question of how can we change the school system so that kids are much more engaged in the whole education process. It does relate it to does. presentations and conferences because I think conferences I'd also like to work out the answer of how can we actually make conferences as effective as possible because I think anyone who works in conferences and has been for many years would currently think we're not really doing it as well as we could. Still doing it the same way we did it 10 years ago, 20 years ago, changed a little bit with technology. Essentially it's still some person on a stage giving a presentation with a PowerPoint screen uh, and people sitting in the audience listening. That's not the most effective way. I don't know what is, but I know that's not. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, obviously TEDx started to reshape yeah. it a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But there's still that interaction piece missing. Yep. And I, we were discussing that yesterday around with a couple of friends who were talking about, you know, how can we be more integrative and how can we actually, uh, I haven't actually spoken about this, in public before, but I think I will. So you have storytelling, you yep. have story showing, yep. but it's the story involving or the story living. So how can you put them in the story as a speaker? Because that's really powerful, yeah. right? Because if, um, if you teach me, I'll forget. If you show me, I might remember. And if you um, involve me, I'll never forget, yep. right? That's, that, that's in all sorts of teaching yeah. and education. So I think how can we do that more effectively too? So there are, we can have a, probably a whole series of yeah, podcasts talking I'm, about that And I'm that working one. hard all the time trying to think of ways to do that, but I think we're a long way off it, both at school and in the corporate world, even though there are improvements going on around the edges. Who has left the greatest impression and potentially had the most impact on your career and why? The answer to that is somebody that you won't know, that nobody will know, a guy called Brooke Emery, who is a poet now, a famous Australian poet. Now, I'm not into poetry, but I've discovered that he's a famous Australian poet, but that's not how I know him. He was my English teacher in high school. He was the guy that at the end of one of my, he was my year nine English teacher, and at the end of one of the year nine classes, Mr. Emery, Name was Brooke Emery, but we called him Mr. Emery. Mr. Emery came up to me at the end of class 
and he said, I think you should do debating. And I said, I don't really have any interest in debating. At that time, I was mainly into, I did pretty well at school, but I was not really into debating. I was much more into basketball. And he said, you talk a lot in class and you're pretty good at talking. And I think debating will be something that A, you'll really enjoy, but I think it's something that you are talented at and that you'll learn how to become a better speaker. Not in a million years did I think that that would have a huge impact on my life and didn't even realise it until, didn't even really occur to me until years later that him saying that led to me doing debating, which led to me liking public speaking, which probably led to me doing law, but more importantly, led to me doing speeches at my mate's 21sts and 30ths and weddings, and then ultimately became interested in acting and performing and presenting and conferencing. If I was to trace my career back to anything, it was probably debating at high school and to him for recognising something that I, that I hadn't recognised. The magic of a couple of words. And the magic of, uh, of a school teacher, difference that a school teacher can make. Yes. So how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way they can connect with you? Because obviously you've got some great things to share. You're, you're very insightful. Uh, well, two ways, I guess. One is that I, do, I spend a lot of time at conferences. So people who go to conferences, if uh, if I happen to be at that conference, they can certainly see what I do as far as MCing is concerned. As far as the presentation skills training, I don't really do one-on-one -on -one training. It tends to be in groups, so my clients don't tend to be the individuals, it tends to be the company or the organisation or the association or the franchise or the government department who will get me to, to come in. I have a website, but the main place that I play really is on LinkedIn. I found LinkedIn hugely useful and valuable from the, for the type of work that I do. That's where my clients, that's where the conference world, the training world tends to live. So I always say to people, I don't think I've given out a business card for two years, that LinkedIn is the best place to, uh, to find me. I'm constantly posting articles, not necessarily ones that I've written, although I do write a lot of articles about presentation skills and conferences, but ones from Harvard Business Review and, and, and Huffington Post and various places, anything to do with presentation skills, I tend to get that feed and read a huge amount about it, and then I tend to drop those back onto, onto LinkedIn. So if people want to find out more about what I do, but more importantly about presentation skills, just have a look on LinkedIn. It's the go-to place for presentations. So Andrew, thank you very much for a, a very enjoyable conversation, lots of energy, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed just seeing how your career evolved. And it wasn't, some of those aspects in there white weren't quite what I thought they would be. You know, you started out in law, and so I was thinking, oh, you know, he must have had a passion for law, and somewhere along the, along the way, he, he decided that, you know what, he, he needed some more outlet to go into presentations, but in fact, you actually hated it from the beginning. Um, to, to see the way that you look at your role as the MC and the one who creates the mood of a conference or an event, through an art and the science of it and the planning that goes in. It's not just about, here's a, here's a piece of paper from the conference organizer the day before or the morning of and just rattling off a few names. You actually put a lot of time into make sure that you get in the right mood and can deliver, um, that the speakers are set up and the audience is alive and alert, ready to go. 
to have it to to listening to you talk about probably like a childlike energy around speaking with Bob Geldof or Sir Bob Geldof. And you know, there's those magic moments in time where you get to meet a real gem. And he's obviously had a, a huge influence on you, not only meeting him, but obviously through music and what he did in Live Aid and just how that how you've remembered that from when you were a lot younger to seeing how you look after yourself. And I think that's really, really important. You, you make sure that your mind is, is free and that you're ready to go and that when you get inside that room, all you are ready to do is present. And everything else is, you've already let that go and you can just deliver that high performance. Um, so Andrew, thank you very much for, as I said, your time today and for sharing some wonderful insights to our listeners. Thanks, Craig. I've really, really enjoyed it. I hope I didn't speak too much. It is an occupational hazard. Today's Active CEO wellness tip is focus in the moment. What we can control is right now. We can't change history. However, we can take what we have learnt, whether that's good or bad, right or wrong, and harness that opportunities to do something better or leapfrog off what was really successful. You need to use your strengths to be better now, improve the way you live, and make a world a better place. It starts with making a choice, a decision that only you can own in the moment right now. That was a brilliant episode with professional MC, speaker, and entertainer, Andrew Klein from Spike Presentations. I love the fact that he spoke about bringing that energy and ensuring that the mood was set right from the beginning of a conference and beginning of a presentation and managing that mood throughout the conference and throughout the session based on how the room is moving and what is happening at that time. Really, really important that he has balance in his life. He makes sure that he takes a break in between different sessions and ensures that he's also having a, a longer break throughout the year so he can bring the energy he needs when he does get up on stage. He likes to look after himself, he gets up early and makes sure that he gets a walk in, he goes to the gym, he might play basketball with his kids when he's back at home and he just lives a really good life. He's smart about the way he sits out his year. He makes sure that he's not going to burn out throughout the year or within a couple of years. He's in there for the long game, in for the long haul, and he makes sure that he establishes that. Wasn't it fascinating that he, he studied law and then went through a law career, but absolutely hated it. And he just kept going thinking, you know what? I'm gonna be optimistic about this and it's gonna come through. So some great lessons there that sometimes we don't have to just keep persevering at something that we really don't like. We need to find something that we do and then really go for it. And that's what he's done in the MC and presenting world. This is the Active CEO with Ordinary Don't Belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.